The honor of New Granada absolutely demands that we teach these audacious invaders a lesson, pursuing them to their last strongholds. Since our own glory requires that we undertake the campaign against Venezuela to liberate the cradle of Colombian independence, the martyrs and worthy people of Caracas, whose cries are addressed only to their beloved compatriots, the Granadans, whom they await with mortal impatience as their redeemers, let us march forth to break the chains of those victims groaning in dungeons, still awaiting salvation from us. Do not betray their trust. Do not be deaf to the pleas of our brothers. Rush forth to avenge death, to give life to the dying, succor to the oppressed, and freedom to all. Simon Bolivar, December 1812. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 34, Bolivar, Part 2 On February 28, 1813, a battle occurred in the town of Cucuta, Colombia, near the Colombian-Venezuelan border. The battle, which began at about 9 o'clock in the morning, involved 400 men under the command of Simón Bolivar, the revolutionary Venezuelan, who attacked the fortress town and its garrison of Spanish troops, a force twice as large as Bolivar's own. Bolivar attacked at 9 a.m. on a Sunday because he suspected that the Spanish commanders would be attending Mass. The day, after all, was the last Sunday of Lent. Turns out he was right. Just as General Ramon Correa was taking communion, an officer rushed into the church and told him Bolivar and the revolutionaries were attacking. Correa crossed himself, left the church, and quickly went into battle. Although the Spanish commanders' forces outnumbered Bolivar's, by early afternoon the Spanish were in full retreat. Correa himself suffering a bad head wound. The key moment of the battle came when it looked like the Republicans were about to be routed. Then, showing the audacity that would mark his later career, Bolivar ordered his men to fix bayonets and charge, a gutsy move similar to the one that, 50 years later, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain would make at Little Round Top during the Battle of Gettysburg. Bolivar had suffered only two dead and 14 wounded, but he'd taken the town of Cucuta, packed to the rafters with ammunition, food, and lots of expensive goods that Spanish royalists had brought to the town for safekeeping against those pesky rebels. It was a treasure trove, and it enabled Bolivar to widen the war for independence, and finally become a real threat to continued Spanish rule in Latin America. Bolivar himself and his reputation were greatly enhanced by the victory at Cucuta. Bolivar was celebrated, toasted, paraded, wined and dined from one end of New Granada, that's what Colombia used to be called, to the other. 
he was well on his way to becoming the Liberator, which is how Latin American history remembers him. But how did this remarkable turnaround happen? Barely six months before, Bolivar was such old news you couldn't wrap day old fish in him. He was in exile on the island of Curacao, after the failure of the Venezuelan independence movement. Certainly the stars were shining on him at the end of 1812 and beginning of 1813. But reverses, both for good and for bad, are a key part of Bolivar's story. Simón Bolivar was a complex man, and his story is very complicated. But it lays at the heart of modern Latin American history. In 1813, Spain was far from divested from the New World, but the bonds really were starting to break. It was Bolivar, through the rest of the second decade, that really cut them loose. Join me now for part two of our series on Simón Bolivar. Good evening. This is the second part in a three-part series on Simón Bolívar, the liberator of Latin America. As I mentioned at the start of the first episode in this series, Bolívar's story is one of the key events of the entire second decade, and one of the reasons this podcast exists at all. The fact that it took 33 episodes to get to him does not reflect any sense that he's unimportant. Quite the contrary. But beyond a few basic facts about Simón Bolívar, such as the oft-repeated one that the country of Bolivia is named after him, so little is taught about him in schools in the English-speaking world that he remains a curiously opaque figure, even to some historians. What amazes me about Simón Bolívar is not his military prowess. The second decade is full of military geniuses, some of whom were on their A-game more often than others. Bonaparte, I'm looking at you. But he was a very passionate man, too, and also a very private one. Throughout his story, there are hints and rumors of great torrid love affairs, like the saucy ones he had in Europe before his marriage. But we know surprisingly little about these women. Josefina Machado, called Pepita, appears in Bolivar's life in 1813, just after the admirable campaign, the subject of much of our episode tonight, and she remained with him off and on for six more years, until roughly the end of the second decade. She's one of the few women in his life we know anything about. But even she, his angel in white, as some describe her, is kind of relegated to the historical background. That's a shame. It seems to me like Bolivar's character was defined by passion. Not just for women, but also for independence, and to a great extent, his personal glory too. This makes him an interesting character, neither totally a hero nor a villain, but with elements of both. He could be villainous, We'll see that with his decree of war to the death. And at times he appears curiously obtuse. I'm still not sure what to make of Simone Bolivar. All I know is that he's one of the hardest to figure out among the many colorful characters of the second decade story. But tonight, we dive back in. We left off at the end of part one, with Bolivar sailing off into exile on the island of Curacao. He and the other revolutionaries failed to liberate Venezuela permanently or decisively from Spanish rule, and Bolivar had turned against his former revolutionary compatriot, Francisco de Miranda, ultimately betraying him to the Spanish. Curacao was a British port. The Spanish let Bolivar go there because bagging Miranda was a coup for them, and because one of Bolivar's friends, Francisco Iturbe, interceded with the Spanish on his behalf. If you had any doubt that Bolivar would eventually return from exile, the return from exile seen as a dramatic moment in every revolutionary's biography, you should know this as well. 
Although the Spanish governor of Venezuela, Domingo de Monteverde, had promised a limited amnesty for defeated revolutionaries, he quickly reneged and moved to confiscate their property. Suddenly, Bolivar, whose family was one of the wealthiest in Caracas, was broke. Unless he wanted to die a pauper in Curacao, getting back into the revolution business was pretty much his only choice, financially speaking. So it's no wonder that Bolivar was plotting his return only a matter of weeks after landing on the island. The revolution against Spanish rule was apparently over in Venezuela, but it was just getting started in New Granada, the province to the west, today's Colombia. Clearly, that was the place to go. In October 1812, almost three months after his exile, Bolivar raised a loan from a local merchant and set sail for the colony. He landed in Cartagena and rented a small house there. Bolivar's passions made his political tempers hard to control. You may remember an anecdote from the last episode about how a harangue at a dinner party got him into trouble in Paris. He was not keen on self-reflection and apparently could rarely sit still. That's what makes it all the more remarkable, then, that in November 1812 he penned a document that was full of self-reflection, at least politically. This was the famous Cartagena Manifesto, a quote from it opened this episode. But before he implored his fellow Americans to revolution, he carefully cross-examined the reasons why Venezuelan independence failed. He didn't put the blame on himself, that would be going too far, but some of the Enlightenment ideals that the young Bolivar hoped to protect through revolution proved now, in his more seasoned reflection, to be obstacles to achieving revolution. What emerges from the Cartagena Manifesto is a kind of a more hard-nosed, no-nonsense approach to revolution. All or nothing. A disciplined approach emphasizing results, rather than ideological fluff and rhetoric. What we see in this document is the emergence of Bolivar, the experienced revolutionary, rather than the thinker. This, too, is a rite of passage of revolutionaries. Look at how Fidel Castro went from romantic revolutionary in the 1950s to a cigar-chomping, fatigues-wearing Soviet stooge in the 60s and 70s. Or even how American revolutionaries, like Thomas Jefferson, changed when the revolution business they thought they were in collided with the business of politics that they were really in. This same kind of thing happened to Simone Bolivar in 1812. But it got him a job. In December 1812, the month of the publication of the Cartagena Manifesto, the revolutionary New Granada government appointed Bolivar as commander of an outpost called Barranca on the Magdalena River. It was a job in the revolution, but not much of one. Barranca was a pretty distant little outpost, far from the thick of things. Some senior commanders in the government didn't want Bolivar to overshadow him. He had proven problematic before. Bolivar, though, couldn't sit still. Where there were Spanish royalist troops, he was going to attack. On December 21st, he began an expedition with 200 soldiers toward a Spanish garrison at Tenerife, up the Magdalena River. Largely with bluff and bluster, Bolivar took the outpost of Tenerife, with a bunch of ammunition and equipment. More men came out of the countryside to join him. The next target was Monpox, further up the river. Again, using audacious moves, basically throwing his troops headlong at the Spanish with guns blazing, mainly to scare them, he bagged this outpost too, and absorbed a number of royalist units into his own army. Within 15 days, over the Christmas and New Year's holidays of 1812 and 1813, Simón Bolívar had captured the entire Magdalena River from the Spanish. The Battle of Cucuta happened in late February. It was something of a trade-off, a favor for a favor. Bolivar had been ordered to take Cucuta by the president of New Granada, Manuel Torresis, 
but Bolivar was itching for a chance to invade Venezuela and see if he could reboot the revolution there. A victory at Cucuta might give him the clout he needed to do exactly that. So Cucuta happened. After some infighting among the new Granada generals, a few of whom resented Bolivar's sudden success, he got authorization to cross the border in early May 1813. If Venezuela ever needed liberating, it was then. Since the revolution collapsed, the Spanish governor, Monteverde, had proved himself to be quite a dick. I already mentioned that he reneged on his word not to confiscate the property of revolutionaries. He soon moved against Creoles, white people born in America, and started scarfing up their property too, and there were executions and atrocities. By some accounts, the Monteverde regime exterminated 12,000 Creoles, who he blamed for fermenting the revolution, which was largely true. He turned a blind eye to bloodthirsty commanders committing some pretty horrible acts out there in the countryside. When Bolivar invaded Venezuela in May 1813, he met considerable success with the same tactics that had stood him in good stead up until now, mainly scaring the Spanish. Often he'd order his spies to infiltrate royalist garrisons and beat their gums about how many thousands of troops Bolivar had and what fierce fighters they were. Talk is cheap, but it certainly got Bolivar somewhere. The town of Merida fell to his army without a fight, and later, in June, he bagged the province of Trujillo the same way. One wonders what he could have done with politically slanted Facebook ads. Then, Bolivar took the gloves off. On June 15, 1813, the day after he captured Trujillo, he issued his Decree of War to the Death. That's exactly what it sounds like. Basically, any Spaniard who joined his army and fought for independence would be welcomed, but anyone who didn't do that would be executed. It was all-out, bare-knuckled war against the Spanish, a war of extermination. This was probably inevitable after the twisted stuff Monteverde had done following the collapse of the revolution, but the decree didn't do Bolivar's historical reputation any favors. More victories followed. At Nikitao, one of Bolivar's commanders defeated a Spanish army in hand-to-hand combat and managed to convince a bunch of Spanish prisoners to come over to the rebels' side. Outside of Valencia, the cage match between Bolivar and Monteverde finally got underway. Monteverde got clowned and eventually fled. On August 4, 1813, the Spanish commander of Caracas, Marquis de Casaleon, surrendered to Bolivar's army. What came to be known as the Admirable Campaign was over. Bolivar's grand entrance into Caracas two days later on August 6 made him seem more like a conqueror than a liberator. He imitated in many respects the triumphs of the old Roman emperors, entering the city gates with pretty girls throwing garlands of flowers at him and crowds lining the streets to cheer his victory. One of these girls was Pepita Machado, who became his lover. Cathedral bells rang and cannons were fired in salute. For the first time, Bolivar was granted the title Liberador, Liberator, by the people of Caracas. Though Bolivar's revolution was a liberal one, By that I mean steeped in the tradition of liberal humanism, as it was known in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, once he got into power in Venezuela, he was pretty much a dictator. Part of the Cartagena Manifesto had diagnosed the failure of the First Republic as being partly because of its democratic government. He wasn't about to make that mistake this time. So Venezuela, in 1813, was ruled by Simón Bolívar, the absolutist. So much for Enlightenment ideals. Unfortunately, liberation from Spanish rule did not bring peace. In fact, the countryside was as violent as ever, except now it was Republicans taking vengeance against supporters of the Spanish. 
Bolivar's government confiscated land and properties from royalist sympathizers. Many royalists were shot. Some were even publicly tortured. Bolivar was making good on that whole war-to-the-death thing. Although the Spanish government had been overthrown, the war was far from over. A group of pro-royalist horsemen who called themselves the Legions of Hell were a particular pain in Bolivar's backside. These guys were like something out of a Mad Max movie. They rode bareback, killed people with sharpened lances, and ate meat that was cured from the sweat of their horses. Bet that tasted good. Throughout 1813 and early 1814, the legions of hell galloped up and down Venezuela, making human pincushions out of anyone they suspected of supporting the revolution. Why were so many people opposed to throwing off Spanish rule? You'd think after 300 years of mismanagement and basic slavery under the Spaniards, they'd be all for it, right? Well, it was largely because of who was leading the revolution. Bolivar was an upper-class Creole, a man of European descent but born in Venezuela, a property owner and an elite. The Spanish and the Royalists' strongest supporters were among the poor and the Catholic Church, who they could easily convince would lose out if those upper-crust Creole elites, you know, like that dastardly Simón Bolivar, got their way and ruled the country. As the situation spun out of control, Bolivar knew there was a problem. The Second Republic was crumbling. Frantically, he wrote letters and sent diplomats to other powers he hoped would help him, like the United States. But President Madison, then embroiled in the War of 1812, refused to sell any arms to the Venezuelan Republic. Bolivar also got the door slammed in his face by the British. Meanwhile, the counter-revolutionary forces, especially those legions of hell, were growing in strength. Throughout 1814, Bolivar was forced to fight several more battles in the countryside to try to stave off defeat by royalist forces. The situation also drove him to desperate measures. At one point, Bolivar got intelligence that the Spanish were hoping to recruit a thousand royalist prisoners being held in the dungeon of La Guaria to join their cause. Since his own troops were outnumbered, Bolivar thought he couldn't risk this, so he had the thousand prisoners all summarily executed. His revolution was drowning in blood. In July 1814, Bolivar and several thousand of his people were forced to leave Caracas. The city was in danger of falling to royalist forces. A column of 20,000 people, led by Bolivar and his army, slowly streamed out of the capital, headed for Barcelona. It's incredible that this exodus doesn't have a higher profile in history. It was kind of Bolivar's version of the Long March, the exodus of Chinese communists to Yan'an in the 1930s. Many hundreds of people died on the march out of Caracas, some of starvation. There was very little food, no supplies, the countryside was forbidding, and filled with wild animals and tropical diseases. And when they finally got to Barcelona, they found the situation wasn't much better. Royalist armies were on the move everywhere. After another battle at Aragua de Barcelona on August 18, 1814, where the Republicans were defeated, Bolivar and his co-commander, Santiago Mariño, were relieved of their command by rival Republican officers. The Second Venezuelan Republic was effectively dead.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Though the Second Republic had been defeated, Simone Bolivar didn't remain away from the war for long. After cooling his heels for a while on Cartagena, he was back at it, this time serving the United Provinces of New Granada. This part of Bolivar's story, I admit, is pretty confusing. The sources I read, which focus mostly on military history, get into great detail about this battle and that battle, and the momentum kept shifting between Republicans and Royalists in New Granada. I'm not going to go into these labyrinthine twists and turns. Suffice it to say, now, after the defeat of Napoleon in Europe, King Ferdinand VII of Spain had the troops, the money, and the logistics to start sending significant forces to the New World to shore up the rebellious colonies. And Bolivar and the Republicans continued to find themselves on the defensive. By the end of April 1815, Bolivar's army was down to 700 men, and infighting among Republican commanders had pretty much crippled his ability to do anything. On May 8, 1815, Bolivar gave up Cartagena and his command. With a few trusted compatriots, he boarded a British ship and headed for Jamaica, a British colony. After he left, the Spanish ultimately captured those portions of New Granada that were still rising against them. The worst of this was a terrible siege of Cartagena, from September to December 1815, where the few Republican defenders inside the city fortress were reduced to eating horses and rats. They didn't hold out. By this time, Bolivar was holed up in a villa in Kingston, the capital of Jamaica. He was sort of a celebrity on the British island, frequently getting invited to dinner parties thrown by bigwigs in mansions worked by slaves, like the mansion of the Duke of Manchester, the governor of Jamaica, who noted that Bolivar, who was only 32, looked old and haggard after years of being in the revolution business. Bolivar was, once again, writing letters to anyone he thought could help him, but there weren't any takers. President Madison delivered yet another upraised middle finger to Bolivar and his revolution in September, when he signed a decree forbidding American citizens from enlisting in wars against Spain. Madison had just come out of one conflict with Britain, and was in no hurry to get involved in another one with Spain. So much for the great Yankee hope. Bolivar still had enemies. On December 10, 1815, Bolivar's manservant, a man named Pio, crept into Bolivar's bedroom where he was staying drew a knife, and stabbed the man who was sleeping in the hammock in that room, who turned out not to be Bolivar, but another guy, Felix Amistoy, a paymaster in Bolivar's army. Under interrogation, Pio confessed that foreigners, he couldn't identify who, had paid him 2,000 pesos to snuff Bolivar. It almost worked. As luck would have it, Bolivar had moved out of the house just a few days earlier after a dispute with his landlady. It was dark, and Pio couldn't tell the man in the hammock wasn't Bolivar. Rumor had it that Bolivar spent that night rolling in the hay with a wealthy British widow. We don't know for sure. In any event, the assassination attempt was never solved. Pio, incidentally, was executed. The hit unnerved Bolivar, and he decided to get the hell out of Jamaica. Originally, he headed for Cartagena, but then, while his ship was at sea, word came that Cartagena, which, as you remember, was under siege, had fallen to the Spanish. Bolivar quickly changed course and decided to go to Haiti instead. He arrived on Christmas Eve, 1815. Haiti proved a good move for Bolivar. 
That country was itself the result of a recent revolution. Formerly the French colony of Saint-Domingue, the single most profitable European colony in the entire New World, the slaves of Saint-Domingue started a revolt in 1791, and ultimately won their freedom in 1804. By 1815 the country was still pretty chaotic, but Bolivar had some connections there, chief among them an Englishman named Robert Sutherland. Sutherland was ostensibly a trader in coffee and cotton, but he was also an arms dealer, and he definitely sympathized with Bolivar. Turns out Sutherland was buddy-buddy with the president of Haiti, Alexandre Pétion. This is where racial politics start to play a role in Bolivar's story. Pétion was mixed race, what they used to call a quadroon. That's a racist term today, but it was quite common in the period of the second decade. Pétion made his bones during the Haitian Revolution, and by the time he became president of Haiti in 1807, he was passionately invested in helping slave societies in the New World attain their freedom. Bolivar, for his part, had never really championed the abolition of slavery. His armies were predominantly white Creole, but after the implosion of the Second Republic, where people of color had for the most part fought against the revolution, he realized he needed to change his tune. Pétion would help Bolivar raise guns and money to make yet another attempt to reboot the revolution in Colombia and Venezuela if Bolivar pledged himself to the abolition of slavery. This was a smart move. After all, he had to try to do something to shake the revolution's image problem as being primarily for the benefit of rich Creoles. Aid from Haiti was not nearly as good as aid from President Madison or the British would have been, but at least it was something. Using money raised in Haiti and Robert Sutherland's arms connections, Bolivar started assembling a force of ships, supplies, and black Haitian soldiers to go back down there and give the revolution yet another try. Under the Spanish, who were getting a little rambunctious now that they were back in charge, the situations of Colombia and Venezuela were deteriorating. One curious aspect of this story is how, whenever one faction or the other, the Republicans or the Royalists, get back in charge, they always seem to overreach. The Spanish and their military commander, General Morillo, were pretty intent on punishing anyone who opposed them. Morillo's men went around the countryside in Venezuela, burning crops, cutting down fruit trees, and imprisoning or killing pretty much anyone they found wandering around out there. The favorite activity of the people in charge after a revolution, confiscating the land and property of people who had been on the wrong side, became an art form in Venezuela. What was left of the Bolivar family holdings were confiscated. Their lands were worth something like 200,000 pesos. In Colombia, military and political leaders who had held out against the royalists were rounded up and messily killed. One guy, Camillo Torres, who had been president of the New Granada Congress, was not only shot in the head when royalist soldiers found him, but his body was publicly drawn and quartered. The former president of New Granada, Manuel Torres, was shot, then hanged, because why kill a guy only once? On March 31, 1816, Bolivar and his expedition set out from Haiti with several ships, a lot of guns, and basically whatever they were able to cobble together during Bolivar's ten months in exile. Unfortunately, the ships found themselves becalmed almost immediately. This is the doldrums, after all. Ultimately, the ships limped to the island of St. Thomas. The reason for Bolivar's detour to St. Thomas was not so much the doldrums, but something a little more primal. He went there to pick up his mistress, Pepita Machado. It's not entirely clear to me where she'd been during Bolivar's exile, but the two of them had exchanged letters, and now supposedly she was on her way to meet him. But on the way to St. Thomas, the expedition met a passing ship that gave Bolivar some news. 
Pepita had already been to St. Thomas, but left. She was back in Haiti. The other commanders of the expedition groaned and rolled their eyes when Bolivar demanded that somebody dispatch a schooner to Haiti to go pick her up. The expedition was then anchored off the coast of Santo Domingo. They stayed there three days, while Bolivar waited for his girlfriend to show up. This shows you the depth of Bolivar's passion for women. I mean, who delays an entire revolution to wait for his girlfriend? To make matters worse, when Pepita did show up, Bolivar vanished with her into his quarters and stayed down there a full day and night doing the horizontal rumba. Pretty much everybody was annoyed. I might add that Pepita was not Bolivar's only girlfriend during this period. In Cartagena in 1814, Bolivar had started yet another affair, this one with a woman named Isabel Sublette. She was 16 years old and apparently nothing like Pepita. Isabel's brother had formerly been an adjutant to Francisco de Miranda. Incidentally, it was Isabel Sublette's brother, Carlos, who was the guy who sailed to Haiti to fetch Pepita and bring her back to Bolivar's fleet in Santo Domingo. Oh, what a tangled web. Finally, now that Bolivar was ready to go, so to speak, the expedition got underway. It took a month to reach the coast of Venezuela. Basically, the only territory that Republicans controlled in the whole country was a tiny island called Margarita. That's where Bolivar proclaimed the Third Republic, on May 2, 1816. The reinvasion of Venezuela didn't go too well at first. Bolivar didn't have that many men and only a few ships, and as usual in this story, the Republican commanders kept squabbling amongst themselves. Early in the summer, Bolivar resorted to his usual tactic, trying to scare the Spanish by telling everybody what a huge army he had and how ferocious they were. Bolivar wrote letters to fellow revolutionaries, hoping they'd be intercepted by royalists, boasting that he had 14 warships, in reality he had 7, and 2,000 men, in reality less than half that number, and, quote, enough arms and munitions to make war for another 10 years. Yeah, right. This is all well and good, but what really scared the Spanish was the fact that some of Bolivar's troops were black, and that he was now publicly pledged to end slavery in areas that he reconquered. This is a key point. In the previous failed reboots of the Venezuelan and Colombian revolutions, Bolivar kept losing in part because ordinary people, many of them people of color, had sided with the royalists against him. The Spanish had managed to make the revolution a class struggle, and it was easy to stoke racial and ethnic resentments by claiming that the revolt against Spanish rule was just an excuse for those rich white creoles, like Samuel Bolivar, to take over the country. But now that Bolivar was pledged to end slavery, and with the backing of Haiti, the world's first country founded by slaves, it seems like they would hold his feet to the fire on that one. This was a dangerous possibility for Spanish America, whose economy depended on slavery. On June 2, 1816, in a place called Carupano, Bolivar declared, quote, I have come to decree, as law, full liberty to slaves who have trembled under the Spanish yoke for three centuries. Finally, he was getting a clue. It was a military measure as much as a political one. His army needed recruits, and runaway slaves were just as good as anyone else, at least now. So far, so good, right? Well, as it turned out, this latest reboot of the revolution didn't end up lasting much longer than the previous ones. On July 10, 1816, at Okumare on the coast, the revolutionary expedition fell apart, as the Republican leaders fell out with one another. I confess that exactly what happened at Okumare is pretty opaque to me. Bolivar hoped to bring the revolution ashore at Okumare, but some wires got crossed somehow, this is what's unclear to me, and somehow it got reported that a Spanish general was on his way with an army of 7,000 
to destroy the expedition. The idea was apparently to get all their supplies and weapons ashore, but confusion reigned. A French ship at Okumari refused to help them, and in a matter of hours the army was gone and all the supplies ended up scattered on the beach. Marie Arana, my chief source for this episode, has written a wonderful and very readable book on Bolivar, but I admit she fails me at this point. It's just not clear to me what happened. After Okumare, though, Bolivar suddenly left by sea, leaving two of his commanders, Santiago Mariño and Manuel Piar, in a lurch. Part of why this section of the War for Independence is so confusing is because there really wasn't one unified head of the Republican movement. Bolivar was important, but the Venezuelan Revolution, especially in 1816 and 1817, was starting to devolve into a struggle among rival warlords, who were only nominally united against Spanish royalist forces. Mourinho and certainly Piar were among those warlords. They were often less interested in cooperating than in securing their own power bases. This often happens in revolutions. In any event, in the last few months of 1816, Bolivar is back in Haiti, again, trying to raise money and guns for another invasion of Venezuela, again. By this time, the revolution has been rebooted more often than Mitt Romney's political career, and with about the same results. Not very impressive. Still, all was not lost. While dinking around in Haiti, Bolivar received two letters. One was from Aris Mendy, the governor of Margarita Island, saying that Bolivar was the only guy with the charisma to unite the Republicans. The second letter was from revolutionaries in Caracas, and was pretty much the same, begging him to come back and to try to exert some leadership over the revolution that was becoming increasingly fractious. On December 21, 1816, Bolivar left Haiti again, arriving on the island of Margarita. Gone was his insistence on dictatorial powers. Now he'd flip-flopped again, and this time Bolivar was telling Venezuelans to elect a Congress and build a new democratic government. Our arms will have destroyed tyrants in vain, he wrote, if we don't establish order and repair ravages. The military campaigns of the new year, 1817, proved finally to be a step forward for Venezuelan and Colombian independence. In January, Bolivar took an army of 400 men to Barcelona and tried to work his way toward Caracas. He didn't get too far, but the battles and campaigns that unfolded over the next few months, which we don't really need to go into, represented an opportunity for Bolivar to unify some of the Republican commanders. Some of them ultimately joined him. PR, though, held out. At this point, the conflict between the various leaders of the Venezuelan Revolution seems to become more important than the war against royalist forces. As Bolivar changed course and started moving up the Orinoco region, various Republican commanders were starting to win important victories against the Spanish. But PR was getting restless. Despite the victories, such as a major one called the Battle of San Felix, he wasn't too keen on cooperating with Bolivar. Part of the issue was, you guessed it, race. PR was mixed race, the son of a white sailor and a mulatto woman from Curacao. He was the only one of the major Venezuelan commanders who wasn't entirely white. PR was also unhappy with how mestizos were treated under the new Venezuelan Republic, which is to say, disenfranchised. Once again, the perception that the revolution was about white Creoles running the table politically was undermining the revolutionary cause. After having been relieved of his command earlier, PR requested and was granted leave from the army on June 30, 1817. Then he started going around telling everyone that Bolivar had dismissed him because of his race. That wasn't true, he requested to be dismissed. But then PR started making statements like this one, quote, Because I am a mulatto, I am not allowed to govern in this republic. 
I have resolved on my honor to fight for those who spill their lifeblood in battle, only to be chained more and more to a shameful slavery. I'm off to the ends of this earth if necessary to lead those who are powerless apart from their brawn. End quote. Whether PR was trying to stir up a race war or not, Bolivar clearly needed to make an example of somebody for the sake of unity. It was a political move geared towards cementing Bolivar himself as leader of the revolution. Revolutionaries often fall out with one another, but somebody always claws his way to the top. On July 23, 1817, Bolivar signed an order for PR's arrest. Bolivar wrote, quote, General PR has slandered the government, proclaimed a hateful race war, instigated civil disobedience, invited anarchy, encouraged assassination, plunder, and disorder. What exactly is it that General PR actually wants for men of color? Equality? No, they already have it. And General PR himself is irrevocable proof. General PR, with his senseless, abominable conspiracy, has tried to inflame a war between brothers in which the cruel would slaughter the innocent for having been born with a lighter skin. End quote. On October 4, 1817, Manuel Piar was brought before a military tribunal in Angostura, the important city that had been, just been taken from royalist forces only late in the summer. The evidence against him, this conspiracy to ferment a race war, was pretty thin. But the tribunal returned a verdict of guilty on several counts, insubordination, sedition, and conspiracy. General Piar was sentenced to face a firing squad. Bolivar himself signed the execution order. The day after the trial, October 16, 1817, PR melted in a hail of bullets in front of the cathedral at Angostura. What would a revolution be without the climactic firing squad scene? So now Simone Bolivar's story has it all. Romantic notions of revolution, lots of battles and fighting, exile, the triumphant return, political intrigue, and some guy facing a firing squad. But was he really making headway? The process of separating Latin America from Spanish rule seemed, at best, three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes two and a half steps back. That seems to be the key lesson I'm learning about Bolivar's career. The story of Simone Bolivar will be continued in part three of this series. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also, check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like History of Vikings, Dead Ideas, The Age of Napoleon, Art History Babes, Explorers, History in Hindsight, and Stuff What You Tell Me. And remember, I have an audio drama podcast, science fiction, called Double Perigee, which is out now. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com or thathistoryguy.com. My historical sources for this episode include Bolivar, American Liberator by Marie Arana, Simon & Schuster, 2013. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.